Father, we come to you now in these moments asking for your grace over these few minutes together. Grace to hear your word, grace to understand it, uh, our hearts that they might believe it. Uh, we pray that all the distractions that cloud our minds, all the places our mind wants to even wander in these moments, that they would be um, focused in on your word, that you would, you would speak to our hearts and that we would be ready to listen. These are words of life and truth for us. And so we pray that we would take these moments seriously as you have a word for us and we trust that you do. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. The late, great British songwriter John Lennon wrote a song in 1971, a familiar song that caught the attention of millions and continues to have an influence and impact on the world today. Uh, in his song, Imagine, Lennon invites us to imagine a world where there's no heaven, no hell below us and only above us sky, a world where all people are living for today with nothing to kill or die for, where religion doesn't exist, a world where all people are living in peace, without need for hunger, without greed, a place where all the world will be as one and unified. Now, Lenin, I believe, writes these words because he's hoping for a better world. He's hoping for something better in what he sees around him, a place where there's life a place where there's vibrancy and peace and unity among people. Uh, to be honest, as you hear those words, maybe you've heard that song, it's hard to argue with a lot of what Lenin wants. I mean, who wouldn't want a lot of what Lenin's saying? Who wouldn't want that kind of a world? You could see how a song like that can move a generation, and it has, and inspire hope and change entire societies and how they see the world. And yet I think that the sentiment of Lenin's song misses a really important problem in imagining this better world for people. And that problem is people, right? Lenin wants this perfect utopian world for people, and yet this great world that he desires, this great world that you and I desire actually to exist, exists of people. The great theologian and philosopher G.K. Chesterton was once asked, what's wrong with the world? And he simply responded, I am. I'm what's wrong with the world. As much as we can look below us, above us, to the left and to the right of us, perhaps even to religion as the problems that plague our world, could any of this become the problems they are if there were not people behind them? Greed needs the greedy person. Hate needs the hateful individual. The problems of our world are great, and yet they are only exceeded by the great problem of the people who live in it, right? While we could imagine and hope for a perfect world, if only we got rid of those things that plague our world and seem to pull us apart, we're still left with the hearts of men and women that are much darker, much more bleak than you and I might think. The passage that Amy read for us this morning in 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 9, it's found on page 996 in the Bibles in the seats in front of you. And I would encourage you to take that Bible, if you don't have one, and to follow along this morning. The passage that we read before us this day expounds on the reality of the days that we live in and about the people who live in them. Right? It expounds on the reality of the world in which we live in and the people who actually inhabit it. As we continue in this sermon series in 2 Timothy, Paul, 
who's the writer of this letter to young Timothy, a pastor, he frames this passage with the idea of living in a period of time, this epic kind of way of saying the last days. We're living in this last day. That's what he tells Timothy. And so that's how we'll, we'll approach our text this morning as well. And I want, to see, I want us to see four things that Paul wants us to see from these words to young Timothy. First, Paul gives Timothy a warning of these last days. Here's what verse 1 says. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. That's it. He says that in these last days there will come, Timothy, times of difficulty. Paul immediately calls Timothy to pay attention to what he's going to say by saying, understand this, mark these words, bold them, underline them in red, mark these words, understand this. And then he throws out this phrase of last days to Timothy. Right? If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, these words may still be familiar with you because Hollywood movies are made out of concepts and themes like this about the apocalypse and guys like Arnold Schwarzenegger saving the world. There's a movie called The End of Days sort of built around this idea of the last days. If you're familiar with the Bible, you might be tempted to think that the last days is some distant existence far into the future, far removed from today and reality. But the scriptures, even our text today, actually tells us, perhaps surprisingly to some of us, that we are living right now in the last days. We are here, we're, we're there, we're in the last days right now. That Timothy himself, when Paul wrote this letter to him, was living in the last days. That all of us are living in this in-between time period of, of history, between the first time Jesus ever entered, entered this world, incarnated into the world with his advent, and between the, the time that he will come again for us, that we are living in this in-between period between Jesus coming and Jesus coming again. And the scriptures show us that the span of time between the first and second coming of Jesus Christ is known as the last days. These are the last days. It's as if when Jesus first entered the world, the fourth quarter just began. We began to run the last lap of the race. The final act of the play is happening right now. We are living in the last days. And so Paul says to Timothy, in these last days there will be times of difficulty there will come before you times of difficulty or perhaps better translated there will come fierce that's what the word sort of makes us feel fierce times difficult times yes but fierce and violent times ahead of us now imagine you are Timothy and you are eagerly opening up this letter from Paul and you get to this part of Paul's letter to you and as you get to this verse Paul tells you that violent and fierce days are ahead of you. It's not exactly a hallmark card kind of a saying. It's not the kind of card that you would pull off of a shelf. It's not exactly cheery words that Paul has for young Timothy. It's not something you would put on a mug. If this was sent today in an email from Paul to Timothy, I'd imagine that Timothy would look at the subject line and click save for later. Because these are not words that I'd imagine you'd want to hear. That difficult days, fierce, violent days are coming. Because it's not, ple it's not a pleasant thing to know that that's what's ahead for us, right? It's not, it's not pleasant to know that dark days are ahead. But hear this. 
Paul's intention with writing this to young Timothy is not to intimidate him, it's not to discourage him, it's not to bring him down or to scare him. Paul is writing this to Timothy to prepare him. He's simply writing this to Timothy in order that Timothy would be prepared. A few weeks ago, I was on a, a long flight, and before we took off from the ground, the pilot got onto the loudspeaker, and his words were, we can expect some turbulence and choppy winds on this flight. Uh, if you've ever experienced serious turbulence in the air, you know how quickly you go into normalcy, into super panic mode. You feel like life is going to end. You should have written a will. You just go into super panic mode because you feel like this plane, this tube that's flying in the air, which is crazy, could come crashing down. You go into panic mode. Uh, but it does something to your mind, right? To know that while you're in the air, the pilot knew this was coming. And he still set out for the journey. It does something to your mind and your heart to know that though you are in the air experiencing choppy winds, that the pilot knew while you were on the ground that we're going to expect this coming. We're expecting turbulent winds and choppy air when we head up there. Rather than feeling it suddenly, could you imagine that? If the pilot said nothing, and, and I've experienced that, perhaps you've experienced that, when all of a sudden you're in the air and you feel a shake and you have no idea what's going on. The pilot gets on the loudspeaker and says, we're experiencing some turbulence. Uh, of course we're experiencing some turbulence, right? It, it's not as comforting when you hear it when you're going through it. But here, on the ground, hearing turbulence is coming, choppy winds are coming, it does something so that when you are responding to it and experiencing it, you hear it differently and you feel it differently. And so Paul is telling Timothy, brace yourself, Timothy. There is turbulence coming. There are difficult and dark days coming. In fact, you're there right now. Another reason I think Paul is speaking with such urgency is because I think that when you get to the end of your life, you start thinking about and talking about things that are most important. Because would you remember Paul's state and condition in life at this point when he's writing this letter? Paul's writing this letter to young Timothy in prison. Paul is nearing the end of his life. He's awaiting his own execution for the sake of the gospel. When you and I don't have much time in the world, perhaps you've been around folks who are at the end of their life, you tend to focus in on those things that are most important, most urgent. And while there's tons of things in the world and that we can be focusing on and reading about and keeping up with, you're not really worried about who made it to the finals. Right? You're not necessarily worried about which, which man got the rose on the bachelorette. Th those things might feel good and well, but when you're in a certain sense of urgency, when you have a final few breaths to breathe in this earth, you tend to focus in on what's most important. Paul is telling young Timothy, Timothy, we are in the 11th hour, the fourth quarter, and Jesus is due back immediately, so you need to listen to these things. As I heard one preacher say, this means that we have no time for recreational preaching or to be fiddling about. There is no time to mince words when it comes to truth and life and the gospel. And so Paul's words are marked with this sense of urgency, utmost importance. Timothy, you need to hear this. 
And so Paul gives Timothy a warning of these last days in verse 1. Second, he tells Timothy about the people of these last days in verses 2 to 4. Who they are and what they are like. Now, as we've already said in the beginning, this world is filled with people. People of darkened hearts. The world is troubled because of troubled people. And in these few verses, Paul gives us a snapshot of the people that make up these difficult and violent and fierce and last days. And I think Paul puts this here in this spot, in part, not for us to merely look outside of ourselves to other people, not to shove the person over next to us, not to look outside of the church, but to look inside of our own hearts and lives, to see this, these descriptions in verses 2 and 4, 2 to 4, as a mirror for us to consider and to self-examine. Right? Consider looking in a mirror, perhaps when you have gunk all over your face. It's hard to look at a mirror and see all that because you begin to see who you really are. It reveals your imperfections. We don't have time to flesh out all that these few verses say because there are 19 characteristics in here. But we'll, to, to give us some flavor of this, we'll use some words I, I heard even this week to help us understand what Paul is trying to communicate in these 19 characteristics. As we read this, would you allow yourselves to dwell here for a little bit? to examine, to even look at your own mirror, to see where you reflect these things. Reading from verse 2, Paul says, For people will be lovers of self, they will be narcissistic, lovers of money, being materialistic, proud, drawing attention to themselves and their accomplishments, arrogant, having an inflated view of ourselves, abusive, being hurtful to others, disobedience to their parents, having rebellious hearts and spirits, ungrateful, being entitled, unholy, being indifferent to sin, heartless, the inability to sympathize or to empathize with others, unappeasable, never being satisfied, Slanderous, desiring the ruin of others, without self-control, being a slave to their appetites, brutal, having no tenderness, no gentleness, not loving good, the inability to savor moral beauty, treacherous, breaking promises for their own good, reckless, living without thinking about the consequences, swollen with conceit, being blinded to self-occupation, lovers of pleasure, seeking ultimate satisfaction in the world rather than lovers of God, having no admiration or love for God. It's a long and dark and bleak list. And if you're honest with yourselves, How did reading that make you feel? How does reading some of those words and characteristics and descriptions make you feel as you read them? I think if you were honestly taking an account of how you're doing, I think you and I would feel uncomfortable because, Christian or not, we can all recognize at least a shadow of ourselves in these descriptions, can't we? That as we read them, you realize, I am that. 
I'm not always that, but I'm that sometimes. I struggle in my heart to not be that. In fact, after reading these verses this week, you can ask Binu or Jay, I walked into the office heavy-hearted, cut, overwhelmed, as I even considered my own life. Because God's word has a way of doing that to us as you read them. Listen, I stand before you as, as one fighting sin, as a pastor, as a father, as a husband, as a friend, as a brother, as a neighbor, as a child of God, fighting sin. So when I read this, my heart is cut. Uh, my heart is, is desiring to walk away from these things, even though I struggle with this. You and I can have a polished form of ourselves in this world. You and I can have a polished form of ourselves even within four walls of a church. But we know that when you go home at night, when I go home at night, and when we lie on our beds at night, that that is not the case. We, we know who we are. We know what it's like to be people who want other people to notice us. We know what it's like to be narcissistic. We know what it's like to be materialistic, to feel entitled to things that we don't have but want, to desire ruin for others, to never be satisfied, to give in to every carnal appetite that we feel. This list is hard to read. It's hard to read for me because it seems like in many ways Paul is painfully, painfully accurate about the state of our hearts, the state of our world and society today. Would you notice as you read this description in these few verses how it starts and how it ends? How does this section, these three verses, start and end? Verse 2 starts by saying, People will be lovers of self. And then verse 4 ends by saying that people are not lovers of God. It's sort of bracketed in, bookended by these two loves. Love for self instead of love for God. Commentators and preachers have said that this section can be summarized as people living with misdirected love. And that everything between these two bookends are because there is love for self instead of a love for God. Because would you consider this? You and I worship that which we love most. And all that we do spills over from our supreme love. Those things that we consider highest of value and worth. Your behavior, your decisions, your actions, your emotions. They all find their roots in our deepest affections, our deepest loyalties. And Paul is saying here that we are lovers of ourselves. If you remember grade school history and science, perhaps some of the kids here are in that realm right now, and you remember hearing about how for centuries, for centuries we thought that the entire earth was at the center of the universe and that everything spun around it, right? It wasn't until the 1500s when Copernican came onto the scene to find out that we actually live in a heliocentric universe, that everything does not revolve around the earth, but actually everything orbits around the sun. And though we've got our science right 500 years later, we still live as those who live as those who think everything revolves around us, right? We've become lovers of ourselves, and within that black hole of self-centeredness and self-interest and self-thought is found all kinds of darkness, all kinds of sin. 
Paul is telling Timothy and us that self-love, love for self, is the essence of rebellion against God. That loving yourself, your own interest, your own desires, your own pursuits, is the essence of rebellion against God. Because what has the mantras of our day been? Would you consider the world in which we live today? What has the mantras of our day been? That the answer to our problem is to love ourselves. To look inside of ourselves. To love the me inside of me. Uh, but what the world offers as a cure to our problem, Paul describes as the very disease. Would you consider this? As one preacher says, what the 21st century offers as an answer to our dilemma, the Bible says is the very reason for our dilemma. We live in a world where the word selfie is now in the Webster's Dictionary. Right? You and I take selfies. I take selfies. We're so consumed by seeing pictures of ourselves and wanting others to see pictures of ourselves. It's, it's a crazy time we live in. It's made itself into Webster's Dictionary. We have no lack of thought or love for ourselves, but what of our love for God? What of our love for God? Are you and I controlled by our love for God, or are we controlled and compelled to the things that we love of ourselves? And if it is love for self, is it a wonder that we find ourselves in these last days filled with violence and difficulty and darkness? Third, Paul tells Timothy about the religion of these last days in verses 5 to 7. Reading from verse 5. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning, never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Uh, Paul is telling Timothy that in these last days, there will be around us and among us the form of religion, the form of godliness, but without any power. You'll have a lot of form, a lot of show, but no power. And what is the power that Paul talks about? You don't necessarily see it here, but it's what Paul says in Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 1. It is the gospel for the power of God for salvation. It's the cross of Christ, the power of God. It's the gospel. Paul is saying that there are many, many among us, Many among you, many who walk around you, who have a form of godliness and lots of religion. But no life-changing, paradigm-shifting, gospel-penetrating power, but lots of form. As the late J.C. Ryle, a great preacher of a previous century, said these words. Hear these and consider these words. J.C. Ryle says, consider those hundreds of people whose whole religion seems to consist in high talk and high profession. They know the theory of the gospel intellectually and profess to delight in evangelical doctrine. They can say much about the soundness of their own views and the darkness of all who disagree with them, but they never get any further. When you examine their inner lives, you find they know nothing of practical godliness. They are neither truthful nor charitable, nor humble nor honest nor kind-tempered, nor gentle, nor unselfish, nor honorable. What shall we say of these people? They are Christians, no doubt, in name, 
And yet there is neither substance nor fruit in their Christianity. There is but one thing to be said. They are formal Christians. Their religion is an empty form. Ryle's words are harsh, but they're true. Because it is possible, Seven Mile wrote, it is possible to be an unregenerate evangelical, to be religious without being Christian, to give service with our lips but not service with our lives, to be wells without water, trees without fruits, clouds without rain. It's possible to have the form but have no substance. To be sitting in pews, lifting our hands, doing the right things, and yet have nothing changed or regenerated in our hearts. If you've been around religion enough, especially in the church, you know how easy it is to think that what's important is simply the form, the external, what you do, the services you attend, the things you sign up for, the money you give. But Paul is telling us that the form means nothing if you have no power, if you have no substance, if you have no gospel, the form is in vain. As I heard one preacher say, somehow we think, like that neurotic rooster who crows every morning, that the sun is coming up because we're crowing, right? As if, as if the rooster crowing is actually making the sun rise. The passenger who stomps his feet on the ground to stop the car does so with no effect. If you're in a plane and you flap your arms, the plane is not going any faster. The power, dear friends, is not in our performance. The power is not in our passion. The power is in the gospel of Christ, activated by the Holy Spirit to transform and regenerate our hearts to love Christ. But how quickly we run to religious form instead of gospel power. And Paul is saying here, don't be that kind of person. And not only that, avoid those kinds of people. Because in Ephesus, what is happening? It seems that there are falsehoods and false teachers going around from those within and among the church creeping around and capturing weak women who are burdened by sins and given over to their passions. Right, just a quick note. Paul mentions women here not as a blanket statement about women, but that in Ephesus, in this particular place and time, the women are specifically being led astray. Yesterday, as I was home watching Reagan and prepping for this sermon, we heard a knock at the door, one knock that sounds very familiar and that we get pretty often at home. There was a man and his wife at the door, a lovely couple, there to greet me and to see Reagan, as they have many times over the years. And this man and wife, they come from the Jehovah's Witness way of thinking, the Jehovah's Witness religion, and they've spoken with me many times. They even know my name now. They know I'm a pastor. And we've sort of built these small talk conversations over these past two years. And one of the ways... This time as we spoke, they tried to get me to accept what they were saying was by using my daughter who was standing beside me in her diapers. They asked me, and it was clever, they asked me, you love your daughter, don't you? You want to see her grow up to be a, a strong, honorable, respectable woman, don't you? Right? What am I going to say? No. Not my little Reagan. That's not what I want for her. Of course I said Yes. And so he hands me this booklet and said, well, you should read this then. 
And so I took the booklet about children and what they say about children. I said, thank you, and told him that I have to run because I have to write him into my sermon now. <laughs> I didn't say that. I didn't say that. But as he gave this, I actually read the booklet as I was sitting by the kitchen table, reading all that was in it. And my heart did some funny things because there was words that I recognized. There was truths that I actually recognized. And yet it was in a, when you looked past the surface, when you looked past the words, there's something else that you see. And as I was reading that, what was fascinating to me was how easily I could see a person hearing these things, perhaps my own heart reading these things, being pulled by these things, reading a booklet like that and being brought to ruin. Reading a booklet that has similar words, similar thoughts, similar phrases, and being brought to ruin all by a man and woman who I'm sure are nice people, who have forms of religion, and yet no gospel, no incarnated Son of God come into the world. And yet how quickly I could veer away, how quickly I could wander away from the gospel Listen, part of the struggle in faith, I know, because I struggle in this way, is wrestling with the opposing and differing views in the world about God and religion. I think it's easy for you and I to fall into the trap. And I've spoken with many folks over these years of saying, how can we be sure that we have got the way? Who knows what's right at the end of the day? If you walk down Canal Street in New York City, for example, you'll see all kinds of goods. You'll see Gucci purses and Tiffany bracelets and Movado watches. The catch is, it's all fake. It's all counterfeit. But I heard this week, and it's, it's a right thought. The fact that the counterfeit exists doesn't mean that the real doesn't. In fact, it requires you and I to be all the more discerning and to use our Bibles to figure out what is true, what is false, what is trying to lead me, in, me astray, and what's trying to lead me to Christ. And these people in Ephesus are flooded with teachings, flooded with information. There are lectures to be attended and books to read and practices to engage in. They are overfed but never nourished, always learning, never landing at a knowledge of the truth. People constantly fighting to lead them astray into falsehoods. You and I are not far from this. I got a knock on the door yesterday. You and I are not far from this. Even within us and among us can this happen. And it brings us to our fourth and final words from Paul. He gives Timothy and us, fourthly, a view into the end of these last days. Reading from verse 8. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. Paul is now in this closing section of this passage comparing the falsehoods, the false teachings and forms of godliness that we just heard about to these two men, Janus and Jambres. Who are these two men? These are actually two names you'll never find anywhere else in the Bible. Uh, but you will find them written about in extra-biblical, extra-Jewish uh, teaching that you can find and even in history. You'll see their, their names written out. Because in Exodus chapter 7 and 8, if you're familiar with the Bible or if you're not, there's this account where 
Moses and Aaron are commanded by God to cast their staff down before Pharaoh, that it might turn into a serpent to show off the power of God. But then what happens as they do so? There are two magicians of Pharaoh's who are said to be written about in extra-biblical literature as these two men, Janus and Jambres. And what happens is that they also cast down their staff, and it also becomes a serpent. Uh, But then Aaron's staff swallows up the other serpent, and then they go back and forth for a few verses. Moses and Aaron show forth God's power, miraculous power through God's power. Janus and Jambres show forth miracles and sorcery by evil, satanic power, until it comes to a quick stop in chapter 8. And these two men can go no longer. They can no longer match the power of God. They had some sorcery. They had some witchcraft that they used. But they could no, go no further at some point. And you read that in Exodus chapter 8. They come to a limit, a threshold, a boundary. And they themselves say in chapter 8, this work that these men have done, Moses and Aaron, this is by the hand of God. And here's what Paul is aiming to do for Timothy. Here's the connection that Paul is making for Timothy as he reads this. For Timothy in this moment, Paul is desiring as Timothy pastors and leads and tries to believe the gospel in Ephesus to encourage him in truth, to encourage him to what is true. Because Timothy, you've got to consider, is surely seeing the success of false teachers. He is surely seeing people surrounded by all forms of religion, being led astray to falsehoods, perhaps in doubt himself and how all of this will end. And Paul tells him to look back at Janus and Jambres. Because what does he say in verse 9 concerning them? But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Paul is saying, Timothy, They can provide falsehoods. They can even make it look like the real thing. But would you know that they have a limit, they have a boundary, and they can come no further. Paul is telling Timothy, who is discouraged likely, disheartened, shaken, he's saying to young Timothy, Timothy, God is not worried or shaken by these difficult and last and fierce days that we find ourselves in because God himself, sets the boundaries and limits to the extent of evil in this world, and it will not overcome you or to those that are his. It will not overcome you. We, you and I, live often sort of with the mindset that we live in a dualistic type of a world. Unsure about whether it's going to be evil that wins in the end or whether it's going to be good that will prevail. We sort of see this world as Batman and Joker, right? Where you have two equal forces, and we're not sure which one at the end of the movie, at the end of the comic, is going to win at the end of the day. We sort of see it as opponents coming into our our home turf, that we have to fight this battle and someone will win win in the end, but we're not sure who. But brothers and sisters, we live in a world that is created by God, controlled by God, upheld by the very hand of God. It's a world in which all falsehoods, all evil, will have its last day. 
There is a limit. There is a boundary. There is no further than what God has already ordained and appointed to which evil can go. As one preacher rightly said, we live in a world where death itself will have a funeral, where all falsehoods will expire, but where truth will march on from everlasting to everlasting. Through these last days, though they are dark and difficult, vicious and violent, Christian, you can be sure that at the end of these last days, a king is coming who reigns and who rules And in that final act, he will receive us into eternal glory. And that is our hope. And so as we close this passage in 2 Timothy, what are some things that we should be believing and applying coming out of this? Just two simple thoughts and we're done. First, set your affections on Christ. Set your affections on Christ. The world says that our problems are outside of us and that we can find the answers inside of us. But the the Bible says the very exact opposite. That we can find the answers not within our darkened souls, but where? In Christ. We can find life and joy and endurance through these last and difficult days only and fully in Christ. Consider for a moment the list the characteristics, those 19 things that we painfully read through. We are verses 2 through 5. We are the wretched. We are the sinners, the self-lovers, the God-deniers. We are those who run from God and worship at our own self-made altars. And yet, the love of Christ meets us. He loves us before we could ever love Him first. So this morning, set your affections upon Christ. Turn away from loving yourself and love Christ. Perhaps for the first time, perhaps for the thousandth time, perhaps as I did even this week, broken by my sin, you could ask the Lord to see your brokenness, your failures, your lack of love and devotion, and that he can perhaps help you and change you and transform your affections to love him. He can and he will for you. Second, to set your confidence in Christ. In the midst of the dark and evil days that we find ourselves in, with all the poles of the world, with all the pleasures we could seek, don't be rattled. Don't be shaken, brothers and sisters, for Jesus Christ is the unmoved King, and there is coming a day, as the hymn says, when all oppression shall cease. Let's pray. Our Father, give us faith to believe these words, words of truth and not falsehood, words that give life and not death, words that if we follow, we will find salvation and truth and Jesus Christ himself, words if we ignore, we will find ruin, will be mastered by our enemy, Satan, who seeks to kill us and destroy us. We pray, O Lord, that even as we see good and evil, the Lord, our King, and the enemy, that we would not see it as a battle yet to be won, but that we would see Jesus Christ already victorious, conquering death, sin, and hell. We pray that we would be moved towards loving Him, towards following Him, denying ourselves, taking up our cross, following the one who has given His life for us. We pray that 
the falsehoods of this world would not lead us astray or distract us. Give us discernment. Give us wisdom. Give us love for Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.